0: This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app.
1: This episode is part of a long series exploring how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 3. The most popular fruit in the United States is the banana. In 2017, Americans ate an average of 28.5 pounds per person. That's a lot of bananas. In the UK, it's said that more than 95% of households buy them every week. That means they pull more money from our wallets than anything else at the grocery store, except lottery tickets and gasoline. All that to say, we love bananas. Smoothies, ice cream sundaes, or as a quick breakfast. Despite our adoration, the United States grows only about 0.01% of the world's bananas. That's so close to 0%. Many of the ones we do grow are the Thai or cooking varieties, not the popular kind you see in grocery stores. Those generally come from elsewhere. We import them. In its heyday, the largest importer of bananas was the United Fruit Company. They controlled as much as 90% of the market. 90%. That's bananas. We just don't have the climate and open land to grow them here ourselves. We have to look outside our borders. But where? United Fruit saw an opportunity in Guatemala, the Central American country just south of Mexico. A former executive for the company once said, and this is an actor reading this,
2: Guatemala was chosen as the site of the company's earliest development activities because at the time we entered Central America... Guatemala's government was the region's weakest, most corrupt, and most pliable. Okay,
1: so wait, those were the selling points? Listen, I've studied a fair bit about corporations that behave badly. And if they go looking for that stuff, you know something shady is about to go down. They were a big company that wanted more than just to play along, to color inside the lines. They wanted autonomy to be a nation within other nations, their own sovereign, to make the rules, because they weren't the most ethical company. To help tell this story, I've got a special guest. Yeah, my name is
3: Stephen Schlesinger. I am the co-author, along with Steve Kinzer, of the book Bitter Fruit, about the American coup in Guatemala
1: in 1954. It's an excellent book. Anyhow, back to United Fruit. They diverted rivers and mistreated workers. They were paid
3: very little. There was no uh, health coverage. They they could be fired at any time. They were um, indentured servants in many ways. And so it was A very miserable life under the auspices
1: of that corporation. A 1928 worker strike in Colombia ended with hundreds, if not thousands, of workers dead. United Fruit had a reputation as a bully. They had the money. They had connections. So, in the 1950s, when a new power threatened their empire in Guatemala, United Fruit decided to employ a tactic that would be very helpful to their cause. They told God-fearing Americans that godless communists were taking over. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce
0: Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. In
1: Central America in the 1940s, United Fruit was known as El Pulpo, the octopus, because its arms reached into everything. One of those tentacles extended into Guatemala. Well, the
3: United Fruit Company, of which of course produced bananas, was the largest landowner in Guatemala. It was, in fact, like a mini country within a larger nation of Guatemala because it owned the railroad system. It owned the, the Atlantic Sheep Port, which is the biggest one in Guatemala. It owned more land than any other private company in, in the country. It had incredible arrangements with a series of Guatemalan dictators, which allowed it to pretty much avoid paying any taxes. It was an extraordinary organization that pretty much dominated not only the country itself, but the politics of the country.
1: Not only did they control the fundamental infrastructure of Guatemala, 40,000 jobs were directly or indirectly under their influence, with over $60 million invested in that country they weren't a benign operation then came the revolution in guatemala the united fruit had its own private
3: dealings with the dictators of the uh central american region and and also in in the caribbean the dictators in exchange for payoffs and private deals allowed the united fruit company to get away with paying just minimal taxes and at the same time these uh, authoritarian Governments outlawed labor unions so that the employees of United Fruit could not organize and try to get better wages and better conditions. Now, with the revolution which happened in 1944 in Guatemala, there there was a threat that all these old, very lucrative arrangements
1: that United Fruit had established would, would be thrown away. Guatemala in the 1950s had a shiny new democratic system inspired by the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal. People could vote, except illiterate women, and they forced companies to pay in actual currency instead of certificates that were only good at company stores. Citizens had freedom of the press and the right to organize, and they established a congress, Military leaders could not be in charge. Term limits were put in place and limits were made on presidential power. Laws were enacted to ensure safe working conditions. Which, you know, United Fruit was probably not that excited about. The FBI, that is, the American Federal Bureau of Investigation, was also upset. Because the first president of the new Guatemalan government made unionization legal. You know belonging to a union something that 35 percent of americans did in the u.s at that time the fbi was worried that this was a sign that el presidente was a commie, but he wasn't it didn't seem to occur to them that unions were also legal in the u.s but there it is the americans were watching and they were worried guatemala wasn't all roses either This was a lot of change in short order for one country. Now that strikes were legal, they lasted for years as people fought for higher wages and better working conditions. And wealthy landowners who were used to trotting around like medieval aristocrats sowed discontent. There were even coup attempts over a dozen as people were restless for their kinds of reforms to happen right away. And of course, there are always people who want a populist strongman over a democratically elected leader. It's all over history. You just had a brutal military dictator. Why would you want another one? (sighs) That's history. Elected in 1950, Jacobo Arbenz was the second president of Guatemala. Now, he's a major player in our story, and this is important. The central tenant of his platform... Was agrarian reform. Now, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but it's gonna make all the difference. His administration sought to take the unused land from companies like United Fruit and give it to peasants who could build new lives for their families, to the Mayan Indians who worked in the fields. Pre revolution, only a few aristocrats and foreign companies owned land. Much of it was going unused. From the Guatemalan government point of view,
3: why not allow that land, which is never being used by United Fruit, to be redistributed to many of these peasants and Ladinos and and Mayan Indians to farm, to allow them to establish little plots of land that they could till themselves and, and
1: sustain their own livelihood. Hopefully building a much needed middle class. It's not like the president wanted to straight up steal those fallow acres. Companies would be paid based on what they'd claim the value was on their tax forms in previous years. Problem was, United Fruit had been undervaluing their land so they could cheat on their taxes. Arbenz himself also lost a bunch of land he'd inherited in this deal, too. He wasn't just hitting the coffee and banana companies, but also his own holdings. Kind of a bold move. But to American eyes searching the world for Russian influence, this looks suspiciously like redistribution of wealth. Some of you are probably yelling at your podcast player, that's communism! It's not, technically, because remember from a previous episode, communism is when the government owns the land and gets the profit. This plan was about giving unused land to people who otherwise couldn't afford it for a small percentage. Not the whole thing. So, not textbook communism. That's not to say that there were no communists in the country. There were 4,000 registered in Guatemala, out of a population of 3 million people. So, you know, it's not that significant. They were active, some holding lower political offices. but Nothing too significant. Okay, so United Fruit got their undies all in a twist. What could they do to get back to the good old days of corrupt pre-revolution government, when things worked in their favor? Step one, change American public opinion. United Fruit organized press junkets from 1952 to 1954 for publications like Time, Newsweek, and the Christian Science Monitor to tour Guatemala and experience for themselves what a communist mess it was in the eyes of the corporation. Members of the press stayed on for a very selective schedule seeing the humane banana plantations and talking to government officials who, maybe it's no surprise, Also happened to work for United Fruit. The press didn't ask questions. Yet. And went home to spread the company's story. I mean, excuse me, their spin. Step 2. Lobby. United Fruit had friends in Washington, including lobbyists with connections in Congress. Their goal? Frame the land grab as a sign of spreading communism and Therefore, a threat to the United States. The U.S. government knew that this was not the case. President Arbenz was not a communist threat. The CIA released a now-declassified report on October 10, 1952. You can read it for yourself. I'll post the links on the website. It says, in part,
0: Although President Arbenz appears to collaborate with the communists
1: and extremists to the detriment of Guatemala's relations with the U.S., I am quite certain that he personally does not agree with the economic and political ideas of the Guatemalan or Soviet communists. And I am equally certain that he is not
0: now in a position where they can force him to make decisions in their favor.
1: Interestingly, for those who have been tracking with this whole season, the first reason for this opinion was... The president's social reform ideas, stem from the US New Deal, rather than from Soviet communism. They learned it from watching us. He wasn't a communist, but a Roosevelt supporter. The land redistribution was more akin to the New Deal than communism, according to the CIA. The report even noted that overthrowing him would be a mistake, giving rise to more extreme ideologies. But remember, not everyone in the U.S. liked the New Deal especially not those in power in the early 1950s. That didn't matter. United Fruit was under attack. Well, it was being paid for land it wasn't using. They found an ally in John Foster Dulles. Yes, the man the D.C. area Dulles Airport is named after. Dulles is an interesting guy. He was Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. Both men were outspoken about religion. Dulles himself, an elder of his Presbyterian church and a leader in the National Council of Churches. Eisenhower referred to him as an Old Testament prophet. A White House press secretary thought he was more like a Puritan. This was the era of public religion in the United States, when Hollywood was cleaning up its act, and monuments were built to the Ten Commandments— the National Prayer Breakfast, and God was on the money. Prayer meetings happened in official offices. Billy Graham preached crusades on TV. In 1954, Dulles was one of the men on hand to introduce a new postage stamp featuring the words, In God We Trust. In January of 1954, the State Department published a pamphlet called The Secretary of State on the Faith of Our Fathers. That pamphlet,
4: written by Dulles, said in part, Our American political institutions are what they are because our founding fathers were deeply religious people.
1: And he advocated that those institutions should remain places of faith. Church wasn't the only place Dulles had connections. He'd been part of one of the oldest law firms in New York and was rumored to have earned more corporate billings than any other lawyer in America. One of his former clients was United Fruit.
3: Yeah, now the Dulles brothers, Alan Dulles, who was head of the CIA, John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State, both had worked as lawyers for United Fruit in the 1930s. They knew the corporation very well. They knew the head of it. They knew the key executives in it, and furthermore, the executive secretary
1: to President Eisenhower himself had worked at United Fruit. So when lobbyists entered the halls of powerful people, they had a captive audience. Secretary of State Dulles was an avid anti-communist, friends with Joseph McCarthy, the guy who organized witch hunts in the U.S. government to ferret out suspected communists and ruin their reputations. Now, many people in the United States were worried about communism in the 1950s. Communist governments had killed more of their own people than any other ideology in recorded history. Their own people, not just outsiders. Russia actively imprisoned people in labor camps who disagreed with the Bolsheviks. Or who did anything suspicious like being religious. I cover this in detail at the beginning of the season communism was a real active threat, just not in Guatemala.
3: Guatemala under our Arbenz would be considered today's terminology as a social democratic kind of government. You know, the ones you see all over Europe, for example, that are left of center, but they aren't communist, and they're freely elected and they, they have a democratic e- e- ethos to, to the way they govern. But in the Cold War atmosphere of, of the, the 19, early 1950s, when the, the U.S. felt threatened by a possible attack by the Soviet Union and its communist philosophy, the, there was a heightened fear that any th- e- even marginal threat to the United States within its own area of influence, namely Latin America, was regarded with with exaggerated
1: fear by Washington. United Fruit could use that fear to their advantage. Win hearts and minds in the court of public opinion. So they got Dulles on board. Once he had his mind set on something, he would not let it go. Winston Churchill once said of Dulles that he was the only case I know of a bull who carries his china shop with him. That's really clever. With the media campaign underway, Dulles and his brother Allen, who was the director of the CIA, got to work. Dulles saw this as a crusade of good versus evil, between a righteous nation and an evil empire. They enlisted two major players, E. Howard Hunt, who would later become a household name for breaking into the Watergate Hotel for President Nixon, and John Parafoy, who had the reputation of being like an old-school mobster who, quote-unquote, loved action. Purifoy would act as ambassador. In 1953, he had a famous six-hour dinner with President Arbenz, their only in-person meeting. After the dinner, he sent a telegram to Alan Dulles to report on what he'd learned.
3: Something to the effect, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, then it must be a
1: duck. In other words, if Guatemala has all of these socially-minded ideas, they must be communists. This telegram is vitally important. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, convincing President Eisenhower to approve operations in Guatemala. Here is an excerpt. I'll post a link on the website if you want to read more of it for yourself. It starts out speaking about President Arbenz.
4: The President stated, that the problem in this country is one between the fruit company and the government. He went into a long dissertation giving the history of the fruit company from 1904, and since then, he complains they have paid no taxes to the government.
1: According to the telegram, United Fruit owed Guatemala money, $150,000 per year, and they weren't paying. There are two more valuable quotes.
4: Normal approaches will probably not work in Guatemala. The candle is burning slowly and surely, and it is only a matter of time before the large American interest will be forced out completely. And? If Arbenz is not a communist, he will certainly do until one comes along.
1: The head of the CIA told Parafoy, essentially, go dig up a new leader for Guatemala. They found their man in Castillo Armas. Armas worked with the CIA to organize counter-revolutionary armies in Honduras and El Salvador. He would tried and failed to overthrow Guatemala in 1950. And don't worry, this guy sounds fishy to me too, but the US government saw in Armas a pliable anti-communist leader. So they went for it. They had their puppet in place. Now they just had to change the minds of people in Guatemala. The CIA chose to do this through the Catholic Church.
3: Yes, the Catholic Church at that time was a very conservative uh, religious organization. And the archbishop of in Guatemala was had secretly been in touch with both Purifoy, our ambassador to Guatemala at that time, and with CIA agents of various sorts. And he fully supported what was going on. He regarded, he was very close to the wealthy elite in Guatemala. A lot of the money for the church came from them. Had, having seen Europe, like Poland and, and uh, other Catholic countries that had been taken over uh, by the Soviet rule under Stalin, he could see what in his own mind
1: was a peril now for Guatemala. The archbishop in Guatemala issued a letter stating that Catholics should rise up against communists, meaning Benz, who, again, was not a communist. The CIA distributed the letter widely. With the church on their side, they turned to the military. They spread the cash around and told military leaders that their job was simple. When the uprising comes, just don't do anything. Okay, so public opinion abroad and at home? Check. Military leaders in your pocket? Check. What about leaders of other countries? The Secretary of State took care of that on March 4th, 1954.
3: John Fosdodell, the Secretary of State at that time, had gone to a meeting of the Organization of American States, which is the regional organization for Latin America, and made a big stir about what was happening in Guatemala and tried to get a resolution passed condemning the... Efforts of Arbenz in his land reform program. And he did succeed in that.
1: The nation's presence signed the deal. I mean, of course they did. If they refused, they could risk losing aid from the United States. Guatemala was effectively on its own. Their neighbors were not coming to their rescue.
3: The way that the CIA maneuvered its takeover was to set up all sorts of systems that were designed to destabilize the country. For example, they set up a phony radio network, which was broadcast troop movements suggesting that an invasion was imminent in Guatemala, even though in fact that those so-called troops maybe amounted to a couple of hundred paid mercenaries paid by the CIA.
1: The CIA didn't need a big invading military. They just needed Guatemalans to think there was one on the way. What's more, they wanted people to think that supplies were being parachuted to this vast army. Some supplies were legitimately dropped to a small rebel group in Honduras, but what good would that do to spread panic in Guatemala? So the CIA parachuted dummy loads of fake supplies into rural areas of the country to make people think the insurgents were everywhere. It wasn't enough to just have some troops on the border— They needed to scare people in populated areas. So the CIA strafed the city with bullets fired from American military planes. The P-47s also machine-gunned the National Palace and strafed the port of San Jose. Later, a school, the city center, airport, and more. Now, the goal wasn't to kill people, but to spread terror. To make residents imagine a coming American invasion. And they needed to frame the Guatemalan government as communist.
3: There was an effort to plant Soviet-style literature in various places around the country. Suggests that that's proof of the communist effort to, to infiltrate and undermine
1: Guatemala. Arbenz backed into a corner needed weapons. He knew the Americans were going to oust him, but nobody would help. The Guatemalan government tried to buy weapons from the United States, but we weren't going to sell them guns so they could shoot at us. And none of our allies were going to sell either. I think it must have felt to the leaders of Guatemala like they were being gaslighted. The Americans denied that they were playing a role in this insurgency, but they also refused to help. American planes were shooting at their cities, but the American ambassador denied that there had been any bombings at all. So what could they do? Arbenz bought weapons from communists because they were the only people willing to sell. Soon, the rebel army, which had been mustered by the CIA's meddling, was on the border. Members of the foreign press were not allowed into the country to do real reporting, you know, find out what was actually happening. Instead, representatives of United Fruit handed out bulletins stating all the journalists needed to know. Stuff like body counts and statistics for them to print back in the United States. Also, the rebels took pictures of villagers with guns, which were, in reality, staged photos of confused locals who had just had a gun thrust into their hands. Come on, foreign press, why go to the battlefield with all that blood and danger? Just stay in your safe zone. We'll give you what you need to know, No surprise, the information was misleading at best. President Arbenz was running out of options. The Guatemalan military did not have Arbenz's back. They would not support him, even as men were killed and a ship was sunk. After all the theater, the shootings, harassment in the press, and the refusal for foreign help, Arbenz was out of options. He transferred power to one of his associates who promised to carry on his reforms. That wasn't good enough for the CIA. Military members forced his replacement out of office after only 24 hours in power. Here is an excerpt from Arbenz's farewell speech.
2: A cruel war against Guatemala has been unleashed. The United Fruit Company and U.S. monopolies together with U.S. ruling circles are responsible. Mercenaries have unleashed fire and death, respecting nothing. We all know how cities have been bombed and strafed. Women and children have suffered. We know how representatives of workers and peasants have been murdered in occupied cities. That was an act of vengeance by the United Fruit Company. And he continued, They have blamed their actions on the pretext of communism. The truth is elsewhere, in financial interests of the United Fruit Company and other U.S. firms that have invested much in Guatemala.
1: On July 3rd, 1954, Castillo Armas took power. An anti-communist, pro-United States leader. Our man in Central America.
3: After Armas took over, the land reform program was repealed. United Fruit got back all this land. United Fruit got back its arrangements on very minimal tax uh, charges. United Fruit was able to ward off any labor organizing that had started to take place under the Arbenz government. Guatemala went back to the 1943-44 period, just before the revolution, where uh, the traditional dictatorship took over and ran The
1: country. The people of Guatemala had to endure horror as their country was ruled by a succession of military dictators, not a democratically elected leader.
3: And in fact, the the worst part of it all is that an insurgency grew up out of the ashes of the Arbenz government to try to reclaim the democracy that had been eradicated by the CIA. And this led to a civil war which went on for the next two decades in which over two million Guatemalans were killed. Can you imagine that? Two million. And only in recent decades, starting maybe 20 20 years ago, did Guatemala finally come to a negotiated peace under the
1: auspices of the United Nations. Within weeks of the coup, seven employees of United Fruit who had been labor organizers were murdered. New labor unions were outlawed and old ones were disbanded. United Fruit after 7 years of agitating turned the country upside down for profits.
3: And I might add too, and one of the odd consequences of the US coup in Guatemala is something that happened today. You know, you have lots of Guatemalans today who are trying to cross our borders into the United States to get jobs. Well, why are they doing that? It, it, from my point of view, I trace it all the way back to that American coup in Guatemala in 1954, because had we not intervened in 1954, I suspect you might have started to build up a true democratic society in Guatemala that would have been today an exemplar of what democracy is all about in Central America, the way Costa Rica has been since 1948. It might have radiated the virtues of democracy to the neighboring countries of Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. Uh, in such a way that that would have forestalled the continuation of dictatorships in all those three countries. You might have built up societies that had middle classes, that had uh, true democratic rights, that were able to employ uh, the the peasants and and, uh, Ladinos who were otherwise jobless. And you might not have had today all these uh, individuals streaming into Mexico and trying to get jobs in in, in the United States. So, uh, you know, in many, many ways, what happened in Guatemala still has an impact
1: today. This story is vitally important to Season 3 of Truce. You may not see the connection just yet, and that's okay. I'll explain it. We spent the last year discussing how the rise of communism impacted the United States, how it created an era of public faith, mostly during the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s, when many in the American government positioned this country as a Christian nation. They backed up that claim with celebrations and public displays of piety. Billy Graham was on television, holding crusades across the country. The economy boomed. People in government held prayer meetings. But our fear of communism led us to do many things that were, let's say, questionable. We were in the business of wanting our people in power. I'll give you some examples. Iran in 1953, the Dominican Republic in 1961, Congo 1960, South Vietnam 1963, Brazil in 1964, and Chile in 1973. Other attempts were made too. We attempted to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba, but he was not as easily deposed. Not even when we attempted to kill him with an exploding cigar. It's important to reinforce the fact that communism was spreading across the globe. Having a communist stronghold within close distance to the United States would prove a real threat. Communists murdered millions of their own people. They suppressed speech and religion. They demanded complete loyalty. But in our fight against them, we used unrighteous methods. Lies, firing on innocent civilians. We touted democracy and then deposed democratically elected leaders, and some dictators too. In claiming that these were the actions of a godly nation, we wounded our witness both here and abroad. Let's consider a question from earlier this season. Is the United States an empire? As we discussed a few months ago, because of technology, it is no longer necessary for an empire to have a physical presence in a foreign land in order to exert control. The United States was able to wield influence in Guatemala with only a few boots on the ground. If some of us are going to tie our faith to the United States, we really should know our history. Americans did all of this out of fear of communism. That's how this story fits into this season. Stories like this also point to a bad habit we have in the United States. If we don't like something, we can just call it communism. Don't like discussing racial tensions in the U.S.? Call your opponent a Marxist. Don't want to fix our healthcare system? Label it socialist. Don't want to pay your workers a living wage? put out a press release saying that protesters are leftists. That's what United Fruit did. And that's one of the enduring legacies of the Cold War. Don't like something? Call it communism. But you and I know that's too simple. In reality, ignoring workers, poverty, racism, and history in favor of name-calling is not what Christians should be doing. That kind of behavior is bananas. I used a lot of different resources on this story. I'll provide a list of them on the website at trucepodcast.com. The best of these was the book Bitter Fruit by our guest, Steven Slushinger, and co-author Steven Kinzer. I'm not an expert on history in South America, and this was a great introduction. While you're on the website, you can also learn how to give to the show. Right now, I work several jobs to make ends meet, and this is a one-man operation. Your financial support would mean we could take this thing to the next level. More episodes, better research, and maybe even a marketing team. Which would be a huge blessing. And if you become a regular patron of the show, you'll have access to bonus content not available anywhere else. Including a bonus episode where I tell you what happened to United Fruit after this debacle and a personal story about why I wanted to do this episode. Visit trucepodcast.com for details. Let's face it, there's nothing else like this show out there giving an honest look at Christianity and history. If you've enjoyed this show, please leave me a review on your podcasting app. It helps people find the show. Also, please hit the subscribe button so you get every new episode as it's released. Special thanks to everyone who loaned their voice to this episode, like Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine podcast, Cat Caldwell of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast, and Tim Winders of Seek Go Create. I also got help from John Wilkerson of the Wired Homeschool, but I was not able to fit those clips in. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.